0: Just what does a black swan event mean to the agricultural market? And we check in with the head of USDA's Farm Service Agency. Welcome to Around Farm Progress, a podcast that looks at agriculture issues across the country. I'm Willie Vogt, your host and editorial director for Farm Progress. The Russia-Ukraine conflict is upending the markets, but what does that mean? Every day there are market reports offering snapshots of what's happening and how it might impact the global food supply. Jacqueline Holland, market analyst for Farm Futures, stepped back to take a deeper dive into the situation. The result is an online series, Black Swan on the Black Sea, which is available at farmfutures.com. We wanted to know more about the series and to learn from Jacqueline what she found out and if she was surprised by some of her research. Then we turn our attention to the Conservation Reserve Program and those emergency disaster payments from USDA. Jackie Fatka, policy editor for Farm Progress, talks with Zach Ducheneau, administrator of the Farm Service Agency, about news from the CRP and where the agency is with those disaster payments. But first, let's learn more about the Black Swan event and what it might mean for your farm. And Jacqueline Holland, welcome to Around Farm Progress.
1: Thanks for having me, Willie.
0: So I'm excited this time. You know, usually when we do these stories with our staff, uh, they're always very interesting. I mean, we just had one recently about skin cancer, which I thought was went really well. But I I was digging in on your Black Swan series, Black Swan and the Black Sea. And uh, this is one of the deepest, uh, richest things we've done in a while. And I really appreciate and applaud you for the work that you've done to take a look at what's going on in the Russia-Ukraine conflict and how it's really impacting the world. What kind of drove all this process to go into this story?
1: There was just so much noise surrounding all of the all of the changing market dynamics when, um, you know, kind of in the last really in the last month after uh, we've really kind of settled in and realized that this Black Sea conflict is here to stay. So I wanted to take a dive in a deep dive just to see what dynamics of the market are changing? Why are these changes significant? And what is really driving some of these really volatile prices, price changes we're seeing in the market?
0: It sounds like everything should be obvious, but I've got a feeling that what you're finding that not everything is an obvious reaction or uh, uh, proactive move as part of this conflict. Is that right?
1: Yeah, very much so. I mean, there have been there have just been a lot of little obscure headlines that as I'm reading them through my daily analysis that I'm just like, oh, that's kind of that's not that doesn't really seem significant. But then as I collected all of these little facts, kind of I kind of realized that we really are starting to see how trade global trade is evolving with this conflict and kind of what we can expect to see going forward too
0: you made an interesting comment and that is that this is going to be with us for a while i think a lot of people hope this would be like a 30-day war and it'd be over and that's obviously not going to happen um i mean you're looking at four areas why don't you characterize those for me first the four parts of this series
1: Okay, so yesterday we published a series about the impacts of the Black Sea conflict to the corn market. And right now, the biggest issue that is driving international pricing is really whether is the likelihood of Ukraine's corn getting out to the markets um we've seen some grain movement there uh ukrainian corn exporters have been able to get some of their stocks out to neighboring countries like moldova and uh, poland romania but that's through train and it is a very timely process to transport that um and you can't move the volumes you can through as you would be able to through the Black Sea. So we we heard overnight that Russia is considering allowing access to humanitarian corridors so that uh, Ukraine can get some of that corn shipped out. But it's Russia, so it has conditions and we're not quite sure if we are going to be able to move on those yet.
0: In the second piece, you take a look at the wheat market, which is interesting. I mean, obviously, corn is a big deal, but we all think of the breadbasket of the world being Ukraine, Belarus, that area. How is that being impacted? What did you cover there?
1: So Russia is actually the world's largest exporter of wheat, and the, the sanctions that Western com- countries have placed on the Russian financial institutions have made it very difficult logistically and financially to purchase wheat from Russia. So I've really been following kind of some of the other different trade flows there. India and China are actively trying to find ways to circumnavigate those uh, to circumnavigate those sanctioned financial institutions so that they can still keep trading wheat are buying wheat from russia and i think you know for me for me the biggest thing i found was just that you know that russian crop is gonna get to market Mm
2: -hmm. they're gonna
1: harvest a bumper crop this year and so now it's just a matter of who's willing to buy it and who's willing to pay the higher prices to procure it
0: yeah i was reading this week um egypt's a major importer of wheat and uh their government instability issues remember the the what is it the the spring
1: um yep the arab spring arab
0: spring started because of, of wheat and bread so <laughs> the egyptian government is pretty much watching that very closely and obviously you noted and i was surprised in the story that russia does have a bumper crop and maybe even bigger than we thought it was going to be right
1: right Right. They're expecting it to be the largest crop on record since the fall of the Soviet Union. So and, um, you know, in the meantime, different countries have stepped in to Mm -hmm. supply some of these other buyers with weed like Argentina, India and Australia. Um, But, you know, there's still some very real cost and logistic constraints to those deals, too. So. Um, it, it's, it's just more difficult for countries who depend on calories from wheat to be able to afford not just the higher prices of the commodities, but the higher cost to obtain this wheat.
0: So the, the third story looks at uh, the fertilizer market, which is also a big deal. And one that's really got people concerned. Not so much for 2022 in the U.S., although it has part of the it's part of the equation for jacking up prices. But maybe for the 2022-2023 crop in Argentina and Brazil, and maybe also for us in 2023. How are you? What did you find, or tell us about what you found there?
1: So you know, as soon as this war broke out, we saw um, the Brazilian agriculture minister hop on a plane and flew all across the world to strike deals with uh, fertilizer producers. Um, And this is because uh, South America imports the majority of their fertilizers. So they're obviously more at risk. Uh, They have more exposure risk for this because they do rely on um, on Russia and Belarus for a significant volume of their fertilizer. So we've seen new deals kind of emerge that Brazil is buying from Israel, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Canada, you know, any place that they can get potash, uh, phosphate, nitrogen supplies from, they are wheeling and dealing to make sure that they do have the supplies they need buy this fall when they start planning their 22, 23 crops.
0: That's interesting. And it's also what impacts the price, of course, is the, the analogy I always use is there's a bucket and the bucket's full of fertilizer. And if you don't, exactly. and part of the bucket comes from Russia and part of the bucket comes from Canada. And if you don't buy, take the bucket, it's the material from the bucket from Russia, you got to take it from Canada. That still changes what's in the bucket and, and impacts the total price globally, no matter where you get it, right?
1: It does, because the U.S. is also dependent on Canada. Uh, We, about 83% of the potash we import comes from Canada. Mm. So we're definitely going to have to compete with more global players um, when we go to start looking at 23 crops this, this fall.
0: In other words, I think the short answer is it's going to keep price pressure on fertilizer for the foreseeable future, isn't it? I
1: think it. I think it will. Um, I mean, I think at the very least, it's going to keep a floor under these higher prices. We saw that global corn and wheat acreage is actually shrinking in 22 and 23. So, since those are two of the most fertilizer-intensive crops. Um, We could see we could see fertilizer producers maybe scale back some of their expansion plans. But we do know that, you know, we've seen nutrient, we've seen mosaic, CNF industries. I'll release uh, plans for expansion in in their latest uh, quarterly earnings statements. So we know that there are more supplies coming. It just really comes down to the timing of it all. And will we have the fertilizer that we need when we need it?
0: That's interesting. How do you wrap up the series? What's that fourth part about?
1: So I take a dive into what's going on in the edible oils market and just kind of use that as A launching point to see how kind of global trade could look going forward. And the gist of that is I really dive into an edible oil deal that Russia struck with India back in March. And it just explained how Indian banks were finally allowing letters of credit to be issued to. I think it was like the one financial institution in India that hasn't been sanctioned. So I really kind of dive into more of the specifics of how are countries going to circumnavigate these sanctions to obtain Russia's oil, fertilizer, and food products. And then also just kind of looking at what does the global trade environment looking forward and um, I'm really estimating that some of these hostile trade relationships are going to come with a price tag. Um, I think, you know, we're going to see more of Russia, India and China trading amongst themselves um, in other countries that are more closely associated with the West are likely to be left out of some of those deals. So I think that's going to keep prices high. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean that everyone benefits either. You know, kind of as we saw in the aftermath of Russia's invasion, um, I think all of the wheat exporters here in the U.S. were really kind of gearing for just just a massive influx of buyers. And we didn't see that happen because the cost of shipping U.S. wheat were higher than that of India and Australia. And it also would take a lot longer to get that wheat from the US to places like the Middle East, Central Asia, and Northern Africa. I think those dynamics, you know, econ- economic dynamics are always going to kind of dominate. But I think we might start to see a little bit more of these trade trade realignments really start to play out going forward.
0: It'll be interesting to see how they circumvent the deals and make that pull together. You know, the other thing that's interesting is, and um, I guess I wasn't paying attention, but anybody listening to this knows that happens. Um, you know, Australia had been under a multiple multi-year drought for so long that I missed when the weather turned. And it, it's not unlikely that that could happen again. And so the other side of this whole trade picture is, one break in the weather somewhere in one of these trading partners could cause an, an even deeper crisis, right?
1: You couldn't be more right about that, Willie. And we're seeing that play out here in the U.S. this year, too. You know, we were already looking at smaller corn acres this year. But with a cool and wet spring, we're seeing and we're just seeing massive planting delays, especially in uh, like North Dakota and Minnesota. hmm. That's really going to shrink the yield potential for this U.S. crop. And that's why we've seen corn prices go so high, because we really didn't have any room to fall short this year. And by the looks of it, we already are.
0: Yeah, I'm not seeing any good news. I mean, the rain that's been hitting in Indiana and Illinois hasn't helped at all either. So my Twitter feed is starting to fill with emerged corn photos, but not as much as it usually does this time of year. So it is quite a big deal. So as you're digging into this, and I mean, this is a deep dive for anybody listening. There will be a link to the uh, premiere story that can bring you links to all the pieces of this great uh, series that uh, Jacqueline's written. Were you surprised by anything when you started digging into the data and getting past some of the noise?
1: Yeah, you know, we, I think it's so easy uh, to write a headline that talks about the world running out of food. And, you know, after after COVID the last couple of years and the toilet paper shortages, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I think consumers are exceptionally sensitive to that. And the reality in this country is, is that we aren't going to run out of food and the world isn't going to run out of food. What this conflict has triggered is tighter grain supplies, which means that, you know, very similar to a financial analysis, there's less grain liquidity in the market. So what that means is that we're going to see more time legs, um, and that's we're going to see that at all ends of the supply chain, because we also have serious supply chain issues that we're still working through, but also that's going to translate to higher costs for transport, processing, retailing, just because of the scarcity of it, and of course, higher raw materials cost too. So. We're not going to starve by any means just here in the U.S., as well as in countries where that are big grain producers. The logistics are just more difficult. Now, you know, I mentioned regions like North Africa, the Middle East, Central Asia. um, A lot of these countries that have to pay to source their calories because they can't produce them, they... Could, this could not have been more terrible timing for them because COVID reduced the amount of money that a lot of these countries can bring in through the, their economy. So that means that they already are paying high dollars for their food, but they also have less and less cash to pay for it with. Um, I think a prime example of this is Cuba and their milk shortage that they're dealing with right now. They're going to be the ones that suffer the most, but it's not because we're running out of food. It's just because of more unfortunate economic dynamics that play in the markets right now.
0: Yeah, the truth is the world has been producing enough food to feed everybody for a while. It's There are other things that get in the way of getting it to the people that need it the most, which has always been a challenge and just made it even harder. When you got done with all this, what was the message you'd like farmers to pick up after they've read the whole series?
1: There were there were so many messages here. I think um, <laughs> one that I heard Joe Glauber at IFPRI talk about last week was, um, you know, for these countries that I just mentioned that probably are going to struggle in this economic environment is making sure we're getting good humanitarian aid to them so that we don't see a repeat of the Arab Spring um, disturbances that we saw back in, um, I think it was like 2010, 2011. The other thing is, is, you know, making sure that we are working on maintaining good trade relationships and good diplomatic relationships with a lot of these other major global players. I mean, it's it's obviously very a very strained diplomatic environment right now, um, and really has been for the last six years. So just there have been a lot of a lot of short-term decisions made that have devastating long-term implications. So I just really encourage farmers to take a long-term view of this situation and, you know, make sure when we go to the ballot box this fall that we are putting people in power who are going to act in the best interest of U.S. agriculture.
0: Well, Jacqueline Holland, this is a fascinating series. Thank you for all the deep dive work that you've done. I hope you can recover from this before you move on. And I appreciate all your work for this. Thanks for joining me.
1: Thank you for having me. It was a very valuable experience, and I hope that holds true for our readers, too.
0: It's no understatement to say that what Jacqueline Holland took on with this Black Swan series is nothing short of massive. She loves digging into data, but turning that information into useful facts is no easy task. And I'd like to note that the online version of the series is more in-depth than what Farm Futures readers might find in print. Check it out by searching Black Swan Farm Futures on your favorite search engine, which I'm pretty sure for most of us is Google. Next, we turn our attention to some domestic support from USDA. Recently, the Farm Service Agency announced that farmers who are taking back Conservation Reserve Program ground to put it into production can start working that ground earlier without penalty. What does that mean? And the agency is also making payouts to farmers hit by disasters in the last two years. Jackie Fatka, policy editor for Farm Progress, gets insight on these issues with Zach Ducheneau, administrator of FSA. Let's listen in on their conversation.
3: I'm excited to be able to talk today with FSA Administrator Zach Ducheneau, a lot of things going on at the FSA offices. And so we're just going to jump right in. Thanks so much for taking the time today, Administrator.
2: It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for helping us get the word out.
3: Well, let's start first with CRP. I know we have talked about this a few times as we've uh, discussed over the last several months. A lot of folks are watching some of those CRP acres that are coming out this year. And USDA actually announced May 26th that it will allow farmers who have expiring contracts this fall to get into those fields yet this summer to begin field work if it is after the nesting period. So let's first, what led the agency to this decision? Because I know that it's something, as I mentioned, we've talked about for several months, but we hadn't necessarily embraced fully to be able to allow those producers without penalty to get into those fields to begin field work.
2: Well, this is just part of the work that we do, you know, all across the department to help ensure that producers have the tools they need to take advantage of production opportunities. You know, the the raising food prices overseas resonate here as higher commodity prices, and we want producers to be able to get ready to take advantage of that just a little sooner without any economic penalty. Normally, we allow producers to get into those fields that are expiring after the nesting season, but there is a, a penalty, if you will, on that based on the economic value. This year, we're gonna let a producer make a written request to voluntarily terminate and go in there and start to do some field prep and some work after the primary nesting season with no penalty or no adverse impacts.
3: So, when it comes to spring, spring uh, I should not say spring, but um, some of the wheat that we could see in the summer or even a, a shorter termed soybean crop with the nesting seasons, could we see some additional acres come in to that yet this summer?
2: I don't think it's beyond the realm of possibility, but it's going to be dependent on what the local uh, stakeholders have set that primary nesting season at. So, producers are encouraged to check and I think we've even got that map available on our website. If not, we'll see if we can get it added on there.
3: Well, I understand that about 1 million acres are coming out of CRP contracts this fall. Uh, Can you give any insight on where some of those acres are? Do we have a lot in the West? Are there some in some of those, quote, prime farmland areas where we could actually see an additional bump in production because of those land that land coming out of the CRP contracts?
2: Yeah, just a little under 55, well, let's see, 55% of expiring acres put in a proposal to re-enroll. And I think that's kind of indicative of the places where there's available moisture or conditions that are conducive to put a crop in. Much of the West is still in the throes of a historic drought. So as you can imagine, many of the acres that are expiring that are coming out are going to be in the Midwest and other places where there's ample moisture for producers to take a look at other options.
3: Well, uh, anything else on the CRP? Uh, have you sent out all of that notification to all of those producers who do have the contracts? And also, too, the producers who enroll don't necessarily have, they still have to officially confirm that they will you know, either enroll or not re-enroll. So, uh, do you still anticipate some additional acres kind of coming in or possibly not uh, coming out yet this this summer as producers consider those changes?
2: Well, producers that had expiring acres this year had the opportunity to re-enroll in our general sign-up, as I understand it. And roughly 55 percent of the acres were offered for re-enrollment. I'm not sure exactly what the number of re-enrollment offers, we accept it is, but I think that helps understand the producer's frame of mind with regard to CRP program. Well,
3: very good. Well, switching gears a little bit, another recent announcement coming out of FSA is the anticipated $10 billion in that crop Crop Disaster Program, which is now called the Emergency Relief Program. And uh, why don't you give an update on where things are at with that? I know we had heard that we might be seeing checks in the mail uh, about this time. So, give us an update on the Emergency Relief Program disaster payments.
2: So, Congress authorized this in September of last year in a continuing resolution, and we went to work with our stakeholders very early and very often to try to determine a better way to deliver this program than maybe what had been done in the past, because it was apparent not only from the producers, but from the staff that the WIP plus model left something to be desired. As we contemplated what this would look like, we determined that maybe a phased approach would be better. And in phase one of ERP, we're working targeting any producer that had a insurance policy or a nap policy that received an indemnity because of a qualifying weather event the nap forms will go out next month the insurance indemnity recipients will have will be receiving a letter shortly that spells out their options gives their information and allows them a really low input opportunity to generate that payment
3: well, and I think that's been a challenge with the disaster payments is that sometimes it comes so far after the actual disaster occurred that it, it doesn't provide that, that shot in the arm that a lot of the producers need. And so uh, great that, that that should be coming out shortly and be able to provide that needed support for, for those crop producers who have been dealt different natural disasters throughout the last couple of years. Um, on a similar note, uh, we also have had some money from the Emergency Livestock Program and uh, who have faced similar disasters. We'll provide an update on where things are at with the Emergency Livestock Program disaster funds as well.
2: You bet. So we have paid out over $583 million in the Emergency Livestock Relief Program payments to producers, who had a qualifying loss in the 2021 year. And that has happened without a single piece of paper, changing hands in most cases. We used information that we had on file and just made a payment to the direct deposit account that we had on file to these producers so that they didn't have to worry about taking time away from calving season or planting season to get out there and and secure that much needed assistance i should mention that the letters for the erp program the crop aspect of this disaster assistance are going out this week and we've already got some of them back in
3: and and also to that 583 million that's gone out there's still some additional funds so producers who may not have received money from the livestock side, but they still may qualify. There's another tranche that would be available yet this summer, is that correct?
2: That's right. And we are accepting stakeholder input on how best to deliver that. But we also want to remind folks that if you would have qualified for the Livestock Forage Disaster Program and circumstances kept you from applying, We are accepting late filed applications for the LFP program that would then generate a payment from last year, as well as an ELRP payment, because we want to make sure that we're taking every opportunity we can to get producers in the door by using our discretion so that they can get a little help in this time that they need it.
3: Well, I think that's probably the best way to end this, too. You know, if you are wondering if you might qualify, if you're looking for whether there's a good program to meet some of your needs, uh, head to your local Farm Service Agency office and see if they can go through with you to see if there's some money out there to help kind of bridge these gaps on some of these issues that farmers have been facing across the country. FSA Administrator Ducheneau, it's always great talking with you. I appreciate the time today.
2: Thank you, Jackie. And producers are encouraged and welcome to email me themselves if they would like to. My email is zach.ducheneau at usda.gov. And that will go to my mailbox and I'll answer it myself. So.
3: Very good. And we'll be sure to add that email too into our uh, our text that we provide uh, with with this this recording. And so thank you again. It's always great, great to hear the things that, that FSA is, is doing to help producers across the country.
2: Thank you very much, Jackie. Really glad to be here.
0: We appreciate Jackie Fatka's continued policy coverage. There's a lot going on in Washington, and she makes sure our readers know about it. We also thank Administrator Ducheneau for taking time to talk with her. And thanks again to Jacqueline Holland for her fascinating Black Swan series. To make sure you don't miss an episode of this podcast, be sure to subscribe on your favorite platform, Apple, Spotify, Amazon, and more. And if you have a smart speaker, all you have to do is tell it to listen to Around Farm Progress and you'll hear the latest episode. Farm Progress is the nation's leading agriculture information source with 17 state and regional brands as well as Farm Futures, Beef, National Hog Farmer and Feedstuffs and our events including the Farm Progress Show, Husker Harvest Days and the New York Farm Show. Join us next week as we continue our agriculture journey around the country. I'm Willie Vogue, Editorial Director at Farm Progress. Thanks for listening.